millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, and welcome to Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. Naz Modirzadeh, my co-host, is away this week. Today we're going to talk about the latest war in the Middle East. Over the past 10 days, Hamas and other Palestinian factions have fired thousands of rockets indiscriminately at Israel. Israeli bombs have left much of Gaza in ruins. As we put this out, the bombardment has killed some 230 Palestinians, including more than 60 children. Most of Hamas's rockets have been intercepted by Israel's defence system or have misfired, but some have got through, killing 12 Israelis, including two children. This latest eruption of violence had been building for some weeks, largely due to things happening in Jerusalem over the Muslim holy month of Ramadan. Israeli security forces fired tear gas and stun grenades at Palestinian protesters who hurled stones and other objects in return. Already simmering tensions are being further... There's been heavy-handed policing by Israeli security forces around the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound, which is known to Jews as Temple Mount. For Muslims, the Al-Aqsa is the third holiest site in the world after Mecca and Medina. Israeli authorities also stopped Palestinians gathering around the Damascus Gate, which is a social hub for residents of the old city in Jerusalem. Palestinians protested in response. Some filmed attacks on Jews, posted them to social media. Ultranationalist Jews took to the streets, chanting death to Arabs and attacking Palestinians. Then there was an Israeli Supreme Court ruling that was due, but has actually now been postponed, but was expected to expel four Palestinian families from their homes in Sheikh Jarrah an East Jerusalem neighbourhood where they've been living for generations. The area has seen intense clashes between Jews and Muslims, with each side saying the land is theirs. CNN's Andrew... Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas, Abu Mazen, also decided to indefinitely postpone elections. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago on the podcast. He partly feared that his party, Fatah, would do badly and Hamas would do well. But the reason he cited for cancelling was that Israel would prevent Palestinians in East Jerusalem from voting. Once they say yes, we will hold elections tomorrow, as long as we are free to go to the polls. The election cancellation further angered many Palestinians who'd hoped to vote for the first time in 15 years. Then, on top of that, there was more aggressive Israeli policing when security forces, after clashes with protesters, blocked Palestinians from entering to pray in the Al-Aqsa and then entered the mosque itself 
and attack people inside. On the 10th of May, Hamas, having threatened for weeks that it would respond to what was happening in Jerusalem, started firing rockets into Israel. Militants fired at least seven rockets towards Jerusalem. And shortly afterwards, Israel began its bombardment of Gaza. Israeli tanks fired into Gaza too. But As that's happening, clashes are broken out between Palestinians and Israeli Jews in several Israeli cities, as well as on the West Bank. So that's the story of how the fighting started. The bigger picture, though, is that this is the fourth time in 15 years that Hamas and Israel have gone to war. Crisis Group, like other organisations, has been warning that with the continued Israeli occupation, with the now almost decade-and-a-half-long blockade of Gaza, and with Palestinian leaders divided, another bout of fighting was, at some point, inevitable. This episode is going to be a bit different from usual. I'm going to be speaking to three of my colleagues. We'll talk about what the war has looked like in Gaza, in the West Bank and in Israel, and what its longer-term implications will be. We recorded on Tuesday the 18th of May. As this goes out, international pressure for a ceasefire is mounting. There's some signs that the fighting may end. So far, however, that hasn't happened. We're going to start by talking to Azmi Kashawi, who's in Gaza. Azmi, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Richard. Could you start by telling us what the last few days have been like in Gaza? Actually, it's for me, it's a totally different experience from the other wars. Uh, the other wars was somehow uh, not so close to home like it is now. In past four days was unprecedented uh, when it comes to the bombing and the intensity of bombing. The Israelis had started dividing Gaza Strip into sectors using a big number of warplanes to bomb each sector. One of the sectors, it might get 50, 60 raids. The Israelis had called that operation the Metro of Hamas, to try the, assuming that they will be bombing the tunnels where Hamas hideouts. But then they, they started in an area which is the most prestigious area in, in the Gaza Strip, where everybody thought it's, uh, it's safe it's in the center of town. And they raided it with 50 raids. The closest to me was 150 meters. Uh, the next morning when I woke up, I didn't recognize the area, uh, one of the main streets. That's where I actually was raised in that area. And 42 people were killed in that raid. It blow your mind to see these images and pictures. And just to discover that some of the families you have known for the 50 years since I was six years old, and, you know, they are, they are not politicized. They are not part of, uh, of this. It's people, they just uh, minding their own business and just doing a living. Then the next day, they, they moved to a different sector. And yesterday, something like 70, 80 raids, you know, destroying more than 11 houses. It's a scary experience, Richard. Even psychologically, you know, it's... Uh, I have, I have some, some in-laws living with me. They kept asking me for sedatives, you know, something because they cannot take it. It's a quiet experience for people, residents of Gaza, this war. Asmi, we were talking yesterday and you described when the bombs were going off, even some kilometers away from you, you described the, the buildings dancing, I think was the word you used. It's true. It's true. This is, this is also something we haven't experienced in the other, uh, other uh, wars. East of Gaza is six, seven kilometers away from my house. North of Gaza is probably 11 kilometers away. And when the bombings were taking place there, 
you know, my house was shaking uh, like five or six in Richter scale. And some of the bumpings we don't hear. We just feel the home shaking. Even now, after the war is over, I think when, when Palestinians will assess the damage, many of these old houses, whatever estimation is now for the cost of the war, it's going to be much higher uh, after this escalation. And Asma, you talked about some of the families that you know uh, personally that have, have lost family members or lost their houses. Is that the same for most people in Gaza? The majority. I mean, uh, Richard, yesterday I told you, you know, if I'm taking only my family and what they have experienced, I'm not even asking anybody else. Already uh, one family had lost 15 members. I know this family for 50 years. My son... He graduated four years ago and he couldn't find job. So he started a little business when they bumped one of the high-rising buildings. This building had fallen on top of the mall where he had his new business, throwing his business and other businesses. Then in the same night, one of his neighbors in the, in the business, his house was destroyed. And the next door neighbors to him, who's also a friend, he figured out uh, that he was killed. They tried to bump a shop next to him and uh, the wall of his house fell in him and uh, he died. Every, every household in Gaza had experienced the loss of a friend or someone uh, he knows in this war. And so, Asmi, there's the, the, the suffering that you're describing and, you know, I think the numbers of, of children that have been killed, I mean, dozens and dozens of, of children killed, People are obviously angry at the bombardment, but are they angry as well at, at Hamas for firing the rockets at Israel, for provoking this bombardment? People, people this time, they are not as angry at Hamas organization as they used in wars before. I think this time they know that the battle is not for Gaza and the battle is Jerusalem for Quds, for Al-Aqsa, and that's something very holy for all the Palestinians. They think it's not a fight for uh, more than it's it's for the future and for the liberation of uh, of Palestine. They think this is, I mean, the only way that Palestinian uh, will uh, will be safe again is when uh, when uh, when the whole thing ends once and for all. Not just to have uh, delaying it round after round after round. So many of the Palestinians, they think this is, could be the beginning, you know, when the Israelis realize not only Israel, Israel and the whole world to find a solution for the Palestinians where they can live free and safe in their own homes. Asmi, does, do Hamas leaders, uh, do they see this latest war as a success for them? What do they feel they've gained from it? I, I, be, I, I will be frank, I haven't spoken to anyone if, uh, from Hamas because you can't reach Hamas at the moment, you know. But out of their general speaks, they give two in, in, in their own media outlets, you know, they, they seem so stubborn. I mean, they keep repeating that this war is not for Gaza. It's not for our own demand. This war is for Jerusalem, is uh, for uh, Sheikh Jarrah, is for all the prosecution Palestinians had been and aggressions Palestinians had been taking all over the years by the Israelis. It's for the absence of international justice to give the Palestinians what they want. If you, if you read for many of those analysts who are close to Hamas, yeah, they, they consider it a huge success. And yet, even if they say they're fighting for Jerusalem, fighting for the Al-Aqsa, 
it's largely in this round of fighting Gaza that's paid the price. Because as long as people keep blame, blaming the, the victim and not the aggressor, I mean, we've been living uh, under any human circumstances for the past 15 years. I cannot travel. I cannot take my kids to vacation. I cannot give them education. They graduated for four years. They have no jobs. I mean, I have more dependence on me to feed than ever before. There is no light at the end of the tunnel for Gaza. So, and when Gaza just rises to, or someone in Gaza rises or make the wake up call, that's the only time when the international community and Arab and Muslim wars start mobilizing or moving or even talking at the Palestinian issue is when there is a huge blood both sides is shedding. But otherwise, in the, nobody, nobody feels for the, for the daily life and the miserable life the Palestinians are having. And there is no way to end it. I mean, I don't see any Palestinians can, or not even a Palestinian, Palestinian or somebody else, you know, saying, okay, if you wait 10 years, 5 years, 7 years, here is a solution, you know, for your end misery. So it's just delaying the, uh, the routes, uh, rounds. So, Asmi, if there is a ceasefire in the coming days, I imagine it'll be a sort of quiet for quiet ceasefire. Basically, Hamas stops the rocket fire, Israel stops uh, bombing. Um, do you think this will change anything uh, in Gaza uh, compared with how things were before this latest bout of fighting? I think it changed a lot. First, it, it depends on how this ceasefire will be obtained, under what conditions. If the key issues to the long-existing Palestinian problems are not addressed. We're only looking about delaying, just buying uh, another short time of uh, quietness. But as long as these key issues like the political issue of the Palestinians, you know, whether they're going to have uh, their own state, whether they're going to live free with dignity, will be able to breadwind for their children if they're going to have a future. This is going to be just buying time for uh, for the next battle. Now, as for this round, yes, it, it changed. It woke, the, woke up the attention that the whole Palestinian issue is connected. Gaza with the Jerusalem, with West Bank, with people abroad uh, who, who wanted to come back or want to be part of what's going on in Palestine, with the Arab Palestinians who live in 1948 the land, it's that it shows that the heart of Palestinians is one heart. The second thing, it shows that it was a big mistake that uh, they canceled the election. Because I think if, we, if Palestinians went to election and choose uh, their own representative, it will be more accumulative decision by the Palestinians whether what face how it's going to be the face of the confrontation with the Israelis but when they canceled the election it allowed just one side of the Palestinians to make the decision for all so I think it was counterproductive they didn't want Hamas to win in this election nobody wishes Hamas to to win or to be part of the of the Palestinian political game but in in reality if an election is happening tomorrow I'm sure 100% Hamas will be winning that election. And that's not my uh, estimate. That's also a lot of Israeli analysts. They said uh, Hamas had won the war even when it started, no matter how it will end, you know. So, Azmi, 
is Hamas going to run out of rockets at any point soon? I don't think so, according to Israeli military estimate. I mean, they're talking about 14,000 rockets. Only a couple of thousands or 3,000 have been fired. So I think they... And even now they're realizing it's not going to run. And now they are rationalizing it. You know, They are not as firing as much as they did before. So their uh, spokesperson came and said, we'll do to go for two months in this round, you know, and keep bombing. It's, I mean, if it's going to stop, it's not because they are out of rockets. And Asmi, what do you say to the argument that the blockade is necessary because it, it stops weapons, it stops the dual-use materials, it stops them going to Hamas? And uh, because of this, you need the you need the blockade. I don't need to to say anything. I mean, the whole world have seen the result of that. There is a blockade for the past fifteen years, and Hamas had gotten stronger with the blockade than they got weaker. The blockade only damaged the Palestinian civilian society and make it more desperate. It it just give the impression to the Palestinians that you if you wait. No matter how long you wait, you will not get it if you just want to rely on humanitarian laws and or UN resolutions or uh, international justice or all these, you know, ethics the world's believing in, you know. They just feel it doesn't apply for the Palestinians. Asmi, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. We're going to turn now to two of my other colleagues, Myra of Sunshine, who's based near Tel Aviv, and to Hani Mustafa, who's currently in Jordan, but usually based for us in the West Bank. We're going to talk to them about their experiences during the conflict and about what comes next. Myra to Hani, thanks for joining. Thanks, Richard. Thank you. So, Myra, why don't we start with with you? Could you talk a little bit about what it's been like to live through this latest uh, bout of fighting? You're near Tel Aviv. Maybe talk about what it's like there, but also, I, I know you have a sense of what it's like in some of the areas where the rocket fire from Gaza has been heaviest. You know, what what does a day at war look like? Well, it's been probably some of the heaviest rocket fire that we've ever seen come out of Gaza. So it's been quite shocking for many people. You have to remember that Israel just came out of the coronavirus. It was the first to vaccinate um, most of its population. Israelis were just starting to get back to normal. They were looking forward to going out. People were starting to enjoy concerts again. And then this kind of came out of nowhere and put you know schools out of business once again. The roads and the streets have been fairly empty And again, in the south of Israel, this is something that trickles in uh, very often. But in central Israel and Tel Aviv, this is not something that we're used to. The last time that this happened was in 2014. And this time around, the barrage of rockets have been much, much um, bigger in scope. Um, And they have overwhelmed at some, in some points, the Iron Dome. So day-to-day life has been uh, quite disturbed in the last week. Of course, it's nothing compared to what's happening in Gaza. But for Israelis, this is, um, is quite traumatizing. And in some of the places that have that have sort of experienced the most rocket fire, what is it? People are, people hear sirens and then they have to stay inside. They get into shelters. I mean, schools are closed. How, do, how does it look? Schools have been closed from all the way uh, by the Gaza border up until Netanya, which is about half an hour north of Tel Aviv, have been completely closed for the last week. Um, and if you live close to the fence with Gaza, you basically are living inside your shelter um, or you've just left and gone to family farther north. 
Um, so there's no way to, to continue living your normal life. It's been completely disturbed. If you live anywhere between in the first kind of uh, 30 kilometers from the fence, uh, you're mostly spending your nights in the shelter if you can, uh, because you're running back and forth so often that you might as well just stay there, especially if you have small children. So Israel has this missile defense system, the, the Iron Dome, which intercepts rockets from Gaza. But what's it like to be in an area when the defense system stops one of those rockets? And then obviously some of the rockets are getting through. Yeah, I mean, the booms that you hear after the sirens, the booms of the interceptions are very, very loud. If you're not in a proper uh, shelter, then you hear them and the, your houses will shake. Uh, it, it should be said, though, that the Iron Dome has been extremely effective. I mean, it's still getting so much of it, um, so much of the rockets. And the, the issue this time around versus last time is that, because as I said, the barrage is so large and there's so many rockets shot within minutes of each other that it overwhelms the system. And so one will, will slip by. And I saw some of the wreckage. Uh, if when one rocket lands, it, it looks like uh, it looks like what what suicide bombings used to look like on a bus in Israel. Um, it's completely destroyed. Um, houses have been completely destroyed. So it's quite alarming. Uh, but it should be said again that the Iron Dome has been extremely effective. And the difference this time around is that some of them are getting through. And so Israelis, I think, as opposed to last time, are being more careful. Uh, last time you saw them going out to the streets, looking at the interceptions uh, in the sky. Uh, this time around, people, I think, are being a lot more careful. And let's come back in a moment to what this might mean for Israeli policy going forward. Tahani, could we could could we come to you? Could could I ask sort of how do things look in in the West Bank? How have West Bankers, how have people in in East Jerusalem experienced the latest round of fighting? I think it's important that we not compartmentalize what's going on here and place this within the context that it deserves, which is that the weeks of violent clashes in East Jerusalem uh, that began in the middle of April last month is what effectively has ignited um, some of the heaviest fighting we've seen in years between Israelis and Palestinians, not only in Gaza, but across Israel, East Jerusalem and now the West Bank. Um, and these aren't, like I said, separate isolated incidences. They're part of a much broader um, collective movement. So, at, you know, ultimately at its core, Palestinians are responding across the divides, political and territorial, to what has been their experiences of living under military occupation, repression, dispossession, and effectively systematic state-sponsored discrimination. And we've seen this vividly play itself out in, in Sheikh Jarrah, to the extent that this East Jerusalem neighborhood has effectively become the kind of emblematic um, of what Palestinians have experienced in this conflict. Um, and these images have not only resonated, but effectively fueled the agitation on the ground and the impact that we're witnessing now. With regards to the West Bank, I mean, we've seen groups mobilize since the 14th of May, where protests have erupted across the West Bank in different, you know, various cities amidst Israel's intensifying aerial bombardment mm -hmm. in Gaza and also the threat of forced expulsion of Palestinians from their homes in East Jerusalem. And in response, Israeli security forces have, have kind of fired rubber bullets and tear gas and used live ammunition in some cases. Just yesterday, we saw a, a boy of 17 years old shot in the chest and, and who died just outside a refugee camp in, in Hebron. And even today, we've got what the Palestinians have termed the Day of Rage, which is a national strike uh, across the Green Line, the West Bank and Gaza. And that's meant to target all economic and commercial sectors. So, you know, this is really kind of spread right across the divide. And Tahani, from what you said, and indeed seen from the outside, it sort of seems that there's this 
again, this sort of reinvigorated sense of Palestinian solidarity, as you say, West Bank, East Jerusalem, Gaza, across uh, across Israel, Palestinian protests across the country. And Asmi, Asmi also talked a lot about the way that Hamas was framing this conflict was different to the way that it framed previous conflicts, that it was for Jerusalem, for all Palestinians. I mean, is that something you feel very much where you are? We're definitely seeing far-reaching unity across the divides, uh, even between non-political Palestinians and, and across the factions. And that's even, you know, spilled across borders where you've had, you know, protests spill over into Lebanon, Jordan, original Jordanian East Bankers coming out at the borders and protesting and chanting um, in support of Hamas, you know, which is not something usual at all. You hear stories, as you said, of, of Jerusalemites and others sort of calling for Hamas to intervene on their behalf or people expressing support for Hamas. But you also hear stories about people being upset with Hamas, that they've sort of opportunistically militarised popular demonstrations. Can you sort of pick apart what the different attitudes towards Hamas are, particularly in, the, in, in Jerusalem and the West Bank? I think it's important that we place the issue of Hamas within its proper uh, context. And again, in the Palestinian context, Hamas is viewed as any other political party, any other political faction, and Palestinian society is very much split on that. Ultimately, you know, I, I don't think we should get too transfixed on the issue of Hamas. Ultimately, most Palestinians see none of the, the kind of political factions representative um, of their interests at the moment, which is why what we are effectively seeing right now is widespread leaderless demonstrations and mobilization. Um, and they've been spontaneous and somewhat disjointed. But it's, it's you know, really critical that we recognize that this has been organized horizontally, not vertically. You know, this is coming from independent individuals. And, you know, that's that, that's kind of uh, sort of the issue here, which is, you know, what what's quite worrying, you know, in terms of of what can positively come out of this for the Palestinians. Um, you know, how much this can actually bring for them, considering, like I said, it's completely leaderless. You know, we don't have a single body that we can sort of sit down, negotiate with that can help quell the unrest that's going on at the moment. And I think it's also worth, you know, um, bearing in mind that that is actually the the kind of leaderless movement that we're seeing now has, you know, been a direct result of Israeli policy and practice for the last, you know, decades since since this conflict began. In Jerusalem, for example, Israel has outright delegitimized any kind of community or political organizing amongst Palestinians, making them, you know, effectively leaderless in that sense. So, Myra, could we talk a little bit about some of the violence in what people call mixed cities in, in Israel, which seems a new element to the war this time around, if you compare it to the sort of three previous conflicts since since 2007, that there's been this sort of intercommunal violence between Palestinians and Israeli Jews in some of Israel's cities. How widespread has that been? How do Israeli policymakers see it? Uh, it is something that's quite unprecedented, what we've been seeing. It's happened in several locations. The city of Lid has been the center uh, where it started and it continues. Uh, but it's also been taking place in Jaffa and Haifa and many, many other other places around the country. And uh, there's certain, you know, Israeli security officials that when you interview them, they'll tell you that the biggest threat uh, facing Israel is not Hamas or Hezbollah, but it's the internal civil society issues facing uh, Arabs and Jews and also Jews and Jews. And so we're seeing that play out right now. And in, in some ways, you could describe what's happening as not just Arab Jewish violence, but violence between radicals and moderates, um, because there are, you know, radicals on both sides. But the the issue with Arab Jewish violence is not something that if you've been following the reality on the ground is very surprising. Uh, there's this notion of coexistence inside Israel, but that's always been an illusion. It's always been a myth. 
Palestinian citizens make up 20% of the population and they are discriminated against. They've never played a role in the government. Uh, they are discriminated against in housing and education and in resources. And the uh, if you go, if you drive through Israel and you go into a Jewish city and then you go into a Palestinian city, you immediately see the difference in infrastructure, the difference in the, the type of government resources that are provided. And the Arab-Israeli parties inside Israel have been warning for years about the neglect, about the crime, the increasing poverty, the socioeconomic disparities. They've been asking the government to take action. And Palestinian citizens have in turn been voting in larger numbers recently in order to try to take um, a larger role in their political future here. Uh, and they haven't managed to to turn that into any kind of solution. So the minute that Al-Aqsa was raided and Sheikh Jarrah exploded, Palestinian citizens also uh, joined as Tahani was talking about, uh, in the mobilization for solidarity. Marav, if you look back to 2014, uh, the last sort of war between Palestinian factions, Hamas and Israel, do you sense that there's a big difference in Israeli Jewish attitudes to the war then and the war now? I mean, are people looking at it in a different way now? How do people see the conflict? I think what's kind of apparent this time around is that Israel is 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 lacking a, a strategy, an effective strategy for dealing not only with Hamas, but with the Palestinian question in general. You know, if you turn on the TV, you hear commentators consistently criticizing Israeli policy or lack thereof. It's kind of just this notion that we should just accept that there will be violence every few years, that there will be rockets every few months or years. Israel hasn't really de developed a clear strategy on how to deal with that. And again, that's kind of different this time around than last time because Hamas is connecting the struggle in other places and Palestinian citizens are connecting the struggle and it's leaving Israel with, I mean, there's only so much that Israeli force and might can do in this situation. And how much does the destruction of Gaza, how much does the death of, in this case, hundreds of Palestinians, dozens of Palestinian children in Gaza, how much does that register on either political debates or public opinion in Israel? I mean, there are there are reports of, of the deaths in Gaza. Um, they do show some of the videos. They they do it to a minimum. And to the extent that they do it, they talk about it. In, they place the blame on Hamas. They say Hamas is putting their infrastructure into civilian areas. And they as much as they might be empathetic or they you know sympathize or they feel horrible about it, they're not taking any responsibility for it. So the discourse about the casualties in Gaza is always, well, this is Hamas's fault. Myra, have you talked about the failure of strategy? But in the short term, what are Israeli leaders hoping to get out of this latest war? What are they hoping that the bombardment of Gaza will achieve? And when do you think they'll be prepared to stop? What they have been, the IDF, what it has been uh, conveying that it wants to achieve is, is a cessation of the fire, just to make it stop, uh, what they call long-term quiet. So they want to make it stop for as long as possible. But nobody is talking about uh, making it stop indefinitely. And it's pretty clear that the IDF has is just incapable of um, completely rooting it out. And it doesn't have a strategy for how to do that. And it has not articulated a policy for how to do that. So what we're seeing right now is just an effort to what they call restore deterrence. Um, and again, because um, when, when Israel says that it has bombed a building because there is military intelligence on that building, we'll never know what, what that means. There's no way for us to have any evidence of what was actually targeted, whether it was successful. Um, so it's very hard to to understand what's actually being achieved right now on the ground in Gaza. And although, as you say, there's there's this questioning, increasing questioning this time around of the Israeli government's 
of Israeli leaders' strategy, that why does Israel have to live with violence every few years because of the situation in Gaza, because of the situation with the Palestinians? Uh, at the moment, the, there may be that questioning, but that's not part of Israeli politics, right? I mean, there's no party that won any serious numbers of votes that were pushing for a different approach towards the Palestinians. Yeah, the consensus in the Israeli political landscape is that Hamas is a terrorist group that you cannot negotiate with. It's not something that you can, there's nowhere to go with it. But that doesn't answer the question of what to do about it, because all the more so, if it's a terror group and it's going to continue uh, firing rockets, then there's going to have to be some kind of alternative at some point. There's nobody really offering that alternative. Um, some of the left-wing parties merit specifically in reaction to uh, the inter-Israeli violence has been calling for Arab-Jewish cooperation. And they've also been saying that um, in addition to the military um, tactics or strategy, that there also has to be a diplomatic one. Uh, what exactly that is, we're not sure. Um, there, But there is consensus in Israel that something's not working and something's going to have to change. And it is important to note that um, this specific escalation now um, happened in a very specific political context where an alternative coalition was about to rise, apparently. And um, Netanyahu was very, very close to being pushed out of power. Um, so many Israelis right now have no faith in Netanyahu um, as a leader. And the question is if there will be eventually somebody who will offer a different approach. So we're speaking on, on Tuesday. We don't know yet if there's going to be a, a ceasefire over the coming days. But Tahani, if, if there is a ceasefire, I mean, how does, how does this war, how does it leave President uh, Abu Mazin? What are his options after this latest bout of fighting? I mean, I think this has just been a completely bad PR blow for both Abu Mazin, the PA and Fatah generally. Um, you know, he's, he's been insulted and sidelined during this entire process from start up until it looks like to finish, you know, at the same protest where people were calling for Hamas to come and defend them against Israeli aggression, you were having insults being hurled at Abu Mazen and the PA. Um, you know, this looks really bad considering that, you know, Abu Mazen had effectively used Jerusalem as a pretense to, you know, delay elections. And now during escalations, he remained pretty much silent other than mere rhetorical kind of sound bites that, that were sort of offered. But there was really no mention of what the role of the PA should have, you know, should be or should have been during this entire process. Um, you've had, you know, senior Fatah leaders that have come out and tried to claim that casualties in the West Bank are, are of, you know, Fatah's, you know, faction and resistance, um, which, you know, a lot, of, a lot of Palestinians have come out to deny you know, they, they've effectively tried to bandwagon onto, onto you know, the, the kind of events that have transpired in the West Bank, but it's just not working. Um, Hamas's popularity is, is at an all-time high. Um, you know, one of the conditions Hamas has put on Israel now is to allow for elections in East Jerusalem. And, it, and if elections were to go through any time soon, no doubt Hamas would win. And so from that, I take it you, you don't see much hope of Fatah-Hamas uh, reconciliation or, or moving towards another election or something to break this stalemate of, of division among the division and lack of representativeness among that you talked about earlier among the Palestinian leadership. 
I mean, initially, when they had called for elections, it was predicated on some kind of power sharing agreement. Um, but that was predicated on the idea that Fatah were to win some majority, where they would then enter into a power sharing agreement with Hamas, um, on the condition that Hamas would run its campaign on the basis of not winning any kind of majority. So the entire power sharing arrangement was essentially underwritten by the idea that Fatah would win a majority of some sort. That is completely out the cards right now. And Dahani, if we could sort of take a step back, I mean, there's been this debate over over recent years that you know you you and Mayrav know much better than I do, which is this sort of debate that that the peace process has been going nowhere for a long, long time, and in fact, uh, the peace process is really just cover for a, a status quo that benefits Israel and that is changing in Israel's favour, and instead. It would be better if Western policymakers in particular, Palestinian leaders, focused on sort of a rights-based approach, one that would focus more on protecting everyone's, but particularly Palestinian rights, rather than pretending, uh, you know, that there's going to be a breakthrough on the peace process. How do you think the war changes that debate? I think, if anything, the war sort of cemented that debate to a large degree. Um, You know, you may have had some maybe just a semblance of hope of, of kind of holding on to those old debates if elections had gone through. Um, because, you know, initially Palestinian elections were largely um, focused on internal governance first and foremost, and then wider international issues came second. But right now, I mean, the the mass kind of mobilization and, and fervor and um, you know, essentially overall objective right now of, of what we're seeing turn into something of a national movement is really about the very discourse you just mentioned, you just mentioned, which is, you know, a rights based discourse. It's about gaining freedom, equality and dignity. And where does that debate sit among sort of Palestinian leaders, both Fatah and, uh, and Hamas? Well, I mean, right now, uh, you know, like I said, Fatah has been quite quiet during this entire process. So it's really hard to gauge where they stand at the moment. With regards to Hamas, I mean, I, they haven't outright come out and said it, but I think just through the concessions that they're asking for from Israel, you know, there were four main concessions. The first was, you know, a, a cessation to all violence, preventing the evictions in, in East Jerusalem, and then, you know, allowing elections in East Jerusalem. And then on top of that, to ensure, you know, freedom of access to Al-Aqsa and worship. And I think that in itself is very um, telling in terms of where Hamas is taking that discourse. You know, it is effectively Hamas has made this war about Palestinian rights first and foremost. This isn't about Gaza. This isn't about Hamas. You know, this is about protecting Palestinian freedom and dignity. Myra, could you just say a word or two about uh, the U.S.'s policy? Obviously, President Joe Biden has been sort of very reluctant to call for a ceasefire publicly. They've sort of obstructed the UN Security Council from doing anything, though US officials sort of say that they're doing a lot behind the scenes and that that's more effective. That, you know, even if they were to come out publicly, Netanyahu wouldn't listen. What do you make of that argument? Yeah, I mean, I, I think Biden's approach has been for a long time on Israel to publicly support it and privately um, be tough on it. Um, I don't know what's really happening. Um, you know, Biden does not want this mess and he's trying to avoid dealing with it. And now he's getting more and more democratic pressure. But I think Biden is trying to just use the least amount of political capital that he has to to deal with this. And uh, like you, you mentioned, I, hopefully the idea is that he gives Netanyahu some leverage publicly in order to use it um, privately. But so far, the U.S. has done very little to enforce the ceasefire. It's actually given Israel more and more time. And could I ask maybe both of you, what do you make of this? 
you know, there has been, on the one hand, there's been, you know, quite a change within parts of the Democratic Party about what they're prepared to say uh, about what Israel's doing to the Palestinians. On the other hand, the Republicans uh, have, you know, sort of gone the other way, almost unconditional support for Israel's right wing. I mean, how how do you see these shifts in U.S. politics? How do you see them potentially shaping U.S. policy overall? Um, well, I think, you know, the election in 2018 of uh, the first Palestinian woman in Congress, um, as well as Ilhan Omar and AOC and some others, they are the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. And we've seen in recent days, um, together with, of course, the uh, foundation that was laid down by Bernie Sanders in his presidential campaign to to make Gaza an issue, a humanitarian issue specifically, um, and to hold Israel to task. This is something that has been growing within the Democratic Party, and the language is definitely starting to change. I don't know if the policy is changing just yet uh, because of the fact that Israel is such a domestic policy issue um, amongst Republicans and Democrats. Uh, but the language is changing. We are hearing um, Congress people call Israel an apartheid state very openly. Uh, they're talking about human rights issues, and um, the progressive uh, arm of the Democratic Party can no longer uh, exceptionalize Israel when it comes to its progressive policies uh, across the world. I think if this continues on this path, and more and more Democrats will start to sign on to the notion that Israel has to be held to account. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with Meirav, especially in terms of the kind of um, divisions we're now seeing within Washington. You're definitely seeing a change in the discourse and in the rhetoric. Um, you know, and you're seeing progressive Democrats come out and openly support the Palestinian cause. But unless that actually leads to any real substantial change on the ground, um, you know, that's that's where the impact needs to be made and felt. And that's where it matters. Right. And Myra, if, if let's come back to you, if if there is a ceasefire in the coming days, what lessons do you think Israeli leaders, maybe uh, Netanyahu, will be able to form his government what lessons do you think they'll have drawn from this latest bout of fighting? Well, I think Israeli military will probably have to, you know, both the Israeli military and the political echelon will have to try to figure out how it miscalculated so badly what Hamas was capable of. Uh, it really has been focusing its efforts much more on the north and on Iran. And it was pretty much sidelined by by this reaction uh, by Hamas. It was the rocket attack started on Jerusalem Day. It's a day in which Israeli nationalists celebrate uh, it really hurt the uh, Israeli right to its core. Um, so the leadership is going to have to figure out what, what it's going to do about that. And again, like the ceasefire, it's clear that it's going to happen at some point, but then it's also clear that this is going to happen again. Um, so I, I don't, you know, the question is what Israel is going to do about that, because if you're a, a resident of southern Israel, then you want Israel to demolish Hamas and to, to just take it out completely. And I don't think Netanyahu has any appetite for that. And I don't think the Israeli military wants to do that either. Um, so it's going to have to kind of take stock of what just happened. Uh, it's trying to build a victory narrative. It's trying to tell the Israeli public that it's hit Hamas uh, very, very hard and that it's taking people out. But uh, after six or seven days of very heavy bombardment, Hamas is still able to, to fire rockets in the center of the country um, when it wants to, for the most part. So it, it, it's unclear that it's even been effective in, in the most basic um, objective, which is stopping the fire. So I think Israel, both militarily and politically, will have to really take stock of what it's going to do. And especially when it comes to East Jerusalem and inside Israel, uh, the same thing. If this continues, um, and it, so far it has... Uh, as much as Israel wants to kind of 
contain and manage and put everything back in its box. Uh, I think this really shows that that's, that's not possible. And so it's going to have to come up with alternatives. And my fear is that the alternatives are going to be even worse uh, as far as the use of force and violence and policing. And Myra, if you were able to sit down with, let's say, Netanyahu, if he becomes prime minister again, you had 10 minutes to talk to him about why the current approach doesn't make sense and what an alternative might look like. How would you make that case? As far as the political landscape, I mean, the Israeli right under Netanyahu and um, to the right of him have been trying to entrench a one Jewish sovereign state for, for a long time. Um, they've mostly been successful so far. But when you ask them what to do with uh, the millions of Palestinians who live between the river and the sea, um, they don't necessarily have a good answer for that. Um, Netanyahu has done really, really well uh, preserving the status quo, but there's only so far that that can go. Um, so I think, you know, if I were to offer Netanyahu an alternative, I would say that we are all stuck here. We basically make up Arabs and Jews uh, are basically half and half uh, numerically in this land. And there's going to have to be some kind of, uh, whether it's in a confederation or some other system, for, a way for everybody to enjoy, as Secretary Blinken has been saying, freedom, security and rights for all. I mean, there's I, I don't see any alternative to that. That's the only way in which I think Israelis will ultimately be secure. Thank you, Myra Tahani. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. Thanks, Richard. Hold Your Fire is a podcast of the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. You can find more of Crisis Group's work on Israel-Palestine and on all the conflicts we cover at crisisgroup.org or follow us on Twitter at crisisgroup. Thanks very much to our producers, Maeve Francis and Ida Holly Namby, and thanks especially to our listeners. Please do leave us a question, a comment, a rating or review, and we hope you'll join us again next week. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 